In the late autumn of 1982, Playboy magazine sent writer Eric Norden up to Bangor, Maine to interview one of, if not the, most famous living writers. That writer? Stephen Edwin King. Leading up to the interview, Norden writes, It was a foggy, drizzling morning in late November when I showed up at King's sprawling, 24-room Victorian mansion, replete with brooding twin turrets and black wrought iron fence. The grillwork on the imposing front gate was fashioned into an intricate spiderweb surmounted by two perching metal bats, as big and about as inviting as vultures. It was a fittingly sinister lair for the writer one hostile critic had called the Wizard of Ooze. But the gate didn't creak, and when King shambled out into the rain to greet me, his appearance was disarming. He is a strapping six foot four inches and weighs in at 200 pounds, a genial bear of a man with an infectious grin and disconcertingly gentle blue eyes behind thick horn-rimmed glasses. He was dressed casually in a faded blue Levi's work shirt, jeans, black leather motorcycle jacket, and scuffed suede chukka boots. His everyday uniform in Bangor, which he describes affectionately as a hard town, a hard drinking workman's town. King is compulsive about his output and suffers from headaches and insomnia if he falls behind schedule. But he's not finicky about working conditions. His children wander freely in and out of his study when he's composing, and he often writes to the blare of hard rock. King is a loving and protective parent and enjoys a close relationship with his three kids, 12-year-old Naomi, 10-year-old Joe, and 5-year-old Owen. King's relationship with Tabitha is equally close. They met when both were students at the University of Maine and were married in 1971. Warm and supportive, Tabby is also a no-nonsense woman, a fact King welcomes and credits for helping him avoid the pitfalls of celebrity. His children are no more overwhelmed by their father's fame than their mother is. When I'm about to go out on a publicity tour for one of the books, King observes ruefully, Owen just says, oh, Daddy's going out to be Stephen King again. In this interview, published in Playboy in June 1983, writer Eric Norton asks Stephen King one simple question, a question about fear, and perhaps what every writer fears the most. Are you afraid of writer's block? To which King thoughtfully responds in what can only be described the most Stephen King way. Yes, it's one of my greatest fears. Writing is necessary for my sanity. As a writer, I can externalize my fears and insecurities and night terrors on paper, which is what people pay shrinks a small fortune to do. In my case, they pay me for psychoanalyzing myself in print, and in the process, I'm able to write myself sane, as that fine poet Anne Sexton put it. It's an old technique of therapists, you know. Get the patient to write out his demons a Freudian exorcism. But all the violent energies I have, and there are a lot of them, I can vomit out onto paper. All the rage and hate and frustration, all that's dangerous and sick and foul within me, I'm able to spew into my work. There are guys in padded cells all around the world who aren't so lucky. This podcast is a companion to The Stephen Kingdom, a YouTube series I host that's all about the man, myth, the legend, one Stephen Edwin King. His life, his works, the immense cultural impact he has had on popular culture, the themes and ideas explored in his works. I invite you 
to come along with me as we embark on our journey, first exploring just why in the hell some popular horror writer up in Maine is worth any of our attention at all. This episode is all about the magic of Stephen King. Welcome, constant listeners, to the Stephen Kingdom. For decades, his works of horror, suspense, science fiction, and fantasy have terrified and delighted audiences around the world. The exceptional Stephen King. Mr. Stephen King. Stephen King. Stephen King. Mr. Stephen King. We begin with Stephen King. Stephen King. The first emotion in both humor and horror is this sort of childish delight. Hi, Georgie. I'm your number one fan. Fiction is a lie, but good fiction is the truth inside the lie. Stephen King, the personification of the writer's hat trick, popular and successful, has at last gotten some respect from the literary crowd, and his books have staying power, destined to be read long after Uncle Stevie's worm food. And to think, if just a few things had gone differently early in King's career, perhaps the world would have never been blessed or cursed with one of the most imaginative, prolific, expansive, and relatable bodies of literary work that only an elite few writers in history have ever been capable of. Stephen King has been a major public figure since the publication of his first hit novel, Carrie, in 1974. That's nearly 50 years. And in that time, he's written more than six times as many words as William Shakespeare, publishing over 350 million copies of his 60-plus novels, five nonfiction books, 200-plus short stories, and 19 screenplays. And this is just a running count, folks. Stephen King is still going strong. And that's not to mention all the movies, miniseries, TV shows, and even musicals his works have been adapted into. In other words, even if you're not a Stephen King fan, even if the very mention of his name sends a cold shudder down your back, try as you might, you just can't avoid the far-reaching tentacles of his influence. But just because the man has written more words than five Bibles, don't you dare start throwing around frigid impersonal words like machine, machine. and output and content and churn. As Stephen King himself once tweeted, churning is for butter, not books. Here is makeup effects artist Greg Nicotero, who is responsible for the iconic makeup in more than 200 movies and TV shows, including The Walking Dead and pretty much all of Quentin Tarantino's films, as well as such Stephen King adaptations as Misery, The Mist, and Creepshow. For somebody as prolific and generous as Steve to continue to turn out material for his fans, and continue to make his fans feel like they're part of this. They're on this journey with him. I like to call it, you know, the mutual admiration society. But Stephen King wasn't always mutually adored in certain circles. As is often the case with genre writers, Stephen wasn't regarded as a serious, important writer by the literary elite. But over time, he has established quite the literary reputation. Once safe spaces for only elite literary snobs, publications like The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Esquire, The Atlantic, Harper's Magazine, Granta, The Virginia Quarterly Review, McSweeney's, and Playboy have all published King's stories. And despite the grunts and groans and mumbles and moans from some of the gatekeepers of the literary establishment, King has racked up quite the trophy case for himself. He's got an O. Henry Award for his Hawthorne-inspired short story, The Man in the Black Suit, a Hugo for his non-fiction work, Danse Macabre, the 2018 Penn Award for a writer whose body of work 
quote, helps us understand and interpret the human condition. His romantic time travel novel, 112263, cleaned up on the award circuit, garnering the LA Times Book Prize and appearing on the New York Times Book Review's 10 Best Books of 2011. Not impressed yet? Well, in 03, he was awarded the National Book Award for his distinguished contribution to American letters. And in 2015, none other than President Barack Obama himself awarded Stephen King the National Medal of Arts. For his contributions as an author, one of the most popular and prolific writers of our time, Mr. King combines his remarkable storytelling with his sharp analysis of human nature. I got a little bling from President Obama yesterday. That's true. Can I see, can I see that? But all these accolades and all this respect has happened relatively recently, considering just how long Stephen King has been writing. For decades, Stephen was saddled with the derogatory label of just a horror writer. But hey, what's wrong with being a horror writer anyway? Well, not a damn thing, according to film and television critic Louis Peitzman. It's not all, you know, monsters and people with powers. You know, there's a lot of kind of quiet horror in Stephen King. And I find that really thrilling. I think that being able to read that and sort of see the horror in areas that maybe you didn't expect to see horror, that really makes me appreciate him more and also broadens, I think, all of our perceptions of what horror can be. Paul Tremblay, a best-selling horror novelist in his own right, and who has spun such spine-tingling yarns as A Head Full of Ghosts and The Cabin at the End of the World, puts his finger on just why King's particular brand of horror is so effective. You know, I think the cool thing with Stephen is, like, he fools you into feeling safe because it, everything feels so familiar in some senses. And, like, you're just going along and then sort of sweeps the legs out from underneath you. It can just, you know, it's just devastating. It's sort of like weird to describe to someone like, oh, I love that, that feels like this could happen. But what's happening is actually really horrible and scary. Being a horror writer is one thing, but to some, what's even worse is being a popular horror writer. Here's King from a 1993 interview with Charlie Rose. I would love to be allowed to go around to the front door instead of always having to use the tradesman's entrance. That would be wonderful. But uh, essentially, I'm sort of resigned to the idea that uh, I'm going to be regarded as a popular novelist with a popular novelist's virtues and a popular novelist's faults. And in a sense, that's all right. I'm running my own race now. If it were a matter of critical acceptance, I would stop right now because that's never going to come on the level that you just mentioned. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Never? No. No, I don't think so. Not in my lifetime, certainly, and probably not after. But before we start to feel too sorry for Stephen, it's not as if he didn't see this pigeonholing coming. In fact, he not only knew this horror writer label would be hard to shake, but he had a chance to actively avoid it, and he didn't. After Carrie debuted, Stephen was at a crosswalk, a literal crossroads, with his editor Bill Thompson, and he was met with a dilemma as to what his next published novel should be. Roadwork? or the very much a horror novel about vampires, Salem's Lot. Editor Bill warns Stephen they'll be typed as a horror writer if they go with the one about vampires, but they both feel Salem's Lot is the stronger novel. And what does Stephen follow up his vampire novel with? A book about a haunted hotel called The Shining. But despite starting his career as a horror writer and the majority of his bibliography loaded with horror novels, Stephen flatly rejects the title. I never said that I was a horror novelist. I never said that I was a suspense novelist. I never said I was anything except a guy who writes books. Well, 
Stephen may not dub himself a horror novelist, but he certainly does seem to relish in scaring the pants off his readers. I write my nightmares out. Occasionally, somebody will say to me, I got a nightmare from reading your book. And my immediate reaction is, serves you right for reading it. Because when you get to the bottom of everything, what I'm involved in is trying to scare the bejesus out of people. You aren't there for tea and cookies, but to serve people's darker tastes. So, why am I so fixated on dispelling Stephen King's reputation as America's best-loved boogeyman? As fellow best-selling author John Grisham puts it, I love horror, after all, and Stephen King certainly doesn't need anybody, least of all me, defending him. Well, the reason I care about dispelling Stephen King's reputation as the king of horror is because it scares a lot of people away from him. And not in the good way King scares us, the bad way. The way that dissuades horror-hating folks from picking up a book written by Stephen King, a book they would otherwise be moved by, possibly even changed by. Because the truth is, his breadth of work is as wide as it is deep. Reputation does not necessarily reflect reality, as the writer of such dramatic works like Hearts in Atlantis and The Green Mile can tell you, yep, none other than Stephen King himself. This woman came around the corner. She was in one of the, uh, you know, the things, you know, they have these electric carts for people that don't have really good mobility. I'm always afraid one's gonna stroke out and the thing's gonna go all maximum overdrive. <laughs> crash into everything, but she was a, you know, almost a Florida stereotype. She had the golf tan, you know, she's about 140 years old and the golf shirt. And she looked at me and then she looked away and then she looked back and she said, I know who you are. You're Stephen King. You make all those scary movies. Well, some people like those, but I don't care for movies like that. I like uplifting things like that Shawshank Redemption. You could read plenty of Stephen King's work without ever touching his so-called horror books. And I, for one, don't want this label to be a turnoff to readers who would otherwise love his writing. The other reason I'm stuck on this horror writer business, it's reductive. It's oftentimes said with disdain. And while there's certainly nothing wrong with being a horror writer, this label has a tendency to overshadow the true reason so many of Stephen's books have stood the test of time, his characters. Renowned Stephen King biographer and Dark Tower chronicler Bev Vincent notes. He creates these characters that we associate with, we understand, and we remember. That's, I think, what makes his books even more memorable. There are lots of other authors where I've read their entire uh, collection of books. And if you put the book in front of me, I might be hard pressed to tell you what the story was about and certainly what the characters were. But any King book, as soon as I look at it, I know who the people in it are, and that immediately associates the story in all of its details. Critics and writers, they love themselves some meaty Stephen King characters. You know who else loves his characters? The actors portraying them. Here's Nancy Allen, who played Chris Hargensen in Brian De Palma's 1976 adaptation of Carrie. He really gets you into the mind of the characters. That's why I like reading him because you immediately, he takes you inside. It's not just an external representation of the character. It gets into the workings of what makes them who they are and why they are the way they are. So what is it about Stephen King's characters that make us drawn to them, that makes them so memorable? Well, hey, how can you forget a relentless rabid dog or a malevolent alien clown that feeds on fear or a sadistic obsessive number one fan? If Stephen King stopped at creating iconic characters like Cujo and Pennywise and Annie Wilkes, he'd already be on the Mount Rushmore of popular horror novels. 
novelists, but it's his everyday characters that keep constant readers coming back for more. Here's horror critic Jen Adams, who regularly appears on Bloody Disgusting's Stephen King podcast, The Losers Club. If there is a through line to um, Stephen King's work as a whole, this what, 70 plus novels at this point, I feel like it really kind of shows in the idea of the quartet and this idea that it's through connecting with other people that we are able to overcome what scares us. Then that doesn't mean they're not heartbreaking and they're not scary at times, but I feel like there is always this connection he has with his characters. And he, I think he really loves his characters. And I think that comes through in his writing. And that's why they feel like real people and they feel like somebody I can connect with too. Relatability. Empathy for characters whose backgrounds we may not share, but who we can understand on a deeply human level. Here's Andrea Subasati, editor of the world's number one horror magazine, Rue Morgue. I think I was just also able to relate to the really working class reality of his narratives and his characters. You know, like I didn't grow up in small town USA, but that was a lot more relatable to me than Castle Frankenstein, let's say, or like the teenagers of Fear Street. So I found it very approachable. It definitely widened my vocabulary and yeah, I just consumed it voraciously. And Stephen Graham Jones, writer of best-selling horror novels like The Only Good Indians and My Heart is a Chainsaw, maintains that the relatability and believability of King's characters are essential to the horror of his novels being so effective on readers. What I really respect about King's writing, even today, is that there's always kind of a, I guess you could call it a working class sensibility to it. Like when his characters have money problems, it doesn't feel like the editor in his brain said, oh, they need to be under some strife. It feels like he understands what those money problems are like. He'll probably spend the first, I don't know, 28, 32% of every novel basically saying, meet this character. This is this character's situation. This is their context. This is their issues. This is what's important to them. And after that, then he drops them into the meat grinder and it's just a roller coaster after that, of course. But horror is not about propping up carving dummies and knocking them down. It's about putting real people into dangerous teeth. And the real people is the important part. This working class sensibility that Stephen Graham Jones observes is not only present in Stephen King's writing style, settings, and characters, it's the foundation of his approach to writing. Being a born and bred blue-collar Yankee, Stephen King has an almost aggressively unmagical and workmanlike view of the writing process, and he's almost equally aggressive in his humility. If you like his stuff, well, he's only partially responsible. I don't think greatness is anything even a great writer can take credit for. The only thing you can take credit for is how much you work at your craft, how much you want to refine what you do, and how much better you can get through work. Work. When asked about his writing process, and boy oh boy is he asked about it a lot, it's the word that comes up most frequently, probably because, according to him, he is working all the damn time. When he's in the middle of a project, given his robust body of work, when is he not? He's writing every day, every day, including Christmas, the 4th of July, and his own birthday. In his exceptional memoir on writing, A Memoir of the Craft, he states, I like to get 10 pages a day, which amounts to 2,000 words. That's 180,000 words over a three-month span, a goodish length for a book. Like all writers, he's got good days and he's got bad days, sometimes finishing those 10 pages before noon, sometimes working well into the evening. Either way is fine with me, but only under dire circumstances do I allow myself to shut down before I get my 2,000 words. 
Whether it's a slim novel like The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon or the gargantuan 1,153-page beast The Stand, Stephen maintains, The first draft of a book, even a long one, should take no more than three months, the length of a season. Stephen's nuts-and-bolts attitude towards writing, however, doesn't lead him to the conclusion that the stories that result from this approach are also pedestrian. No, to Stephen, writing is work. It's really, really hard work. But the stories that spring from it are something ethereal and otherworldly. In On Writing, Stephen emphasizes, We are talking about tools and carpentry, about words and style. But remember, we are also talking about magic. Magic. The word is littered throughout his memoir, and it frequently pops up in his other works as well, both fiction and nonfiction. Books are a uniquely portable magic. And writing is magic, as much the water of life as any other creative art. And Dumbo didn't need the feather. Magic was in him. At the beginning of It, Stephen dedicates the novel to his three children and says, Kids, fiction is the truth inside the lie. And the truth of this fiction is simple enough. The magic exists. Fiction. The truth inside the lie. Again, Stephen gives us yet another paradox when it comes to writing and storytelling. And how does Stephen choose to open his memoir on writing? With two epigraphs. The first from Miguel de Cervantes. Honesty's the best policy. And the anonymous second epigraph. Liars prosper. Here's Charles Ardai, the creator of Hard Case Crime, which to date has exclusively published three of King's books, The Colorado Kid, Joyland, and Later. When you talk about the magic of Stephen King, there's the magic that's on the page, which millions of people know. But then there's the magic of his personal conduct, the way he lives his life, and the way he supports the things he cares about and believes in. And he is a genuinely kind man. Hold on a sec. The so-called king of horror, the man who created some of the scariest characters in popular literature, is a genuinely kind man? Remember when Stephen was at that literal crossroads of his burgeoning writing career with his editor Bill Thompson, deciding which book to publish after Carrie? Knowing that their decision could potentially harm King's career if he becomes irrevocably labeled just a horror writer? Well, as we'll get into in the next episode, King was capital P poor before Carrie was published. And he wanted one thing and one thing only. Make enough money writing so he could support his family. Or, as Stephen flatly told Editor Bill, I don't care what they call me, as long as the checks don't bounce. Despite the noble intentions of trying to provide for his family, this workmanlike approach to writing might sound to some like uh, selling out. Might sound like Stephen King is now just churning out spooky books one after the other to pay for his second house in Florida. But by King's own admission, if he were writing for the money, he'd have quit a long time ago. Fellow horror and fantasy novelist Darren Shan notes, He's always kept putting the books out. He's always kept trying new ideas. He's always kept pushing himself. You know, he was a multimillionaire by the you know, late 70s, early 80s. He, you know, he doesn't need to do this. He does it because he loves writing, because he loves sharing, and he keeps going. And I, I just, I'm in awe tonight. Truly, truly, honestly. Best-selling author Richard Chismar's got a first-hand experience on King's love of writing, thanks to his co-authoring two novels with Stephen himself, Gwendy's Button Box and Gwendy's Final Task. He's got all the, the money he needs, he has all the, the fame he needs, and all the acclaim and the awards that anyone could hope for. But it's, it's not why he started doing it, and it's not why he's still doing it in the 70s. You know, and that's, that's, that's a really admirable thing, I, I think. 
So Stephen King is a multimillionaire who's still actively writing. Great, he loves writing. But what the heck is he doing with all this money? I mean, it's his money, he can do with it what he wants, but I haven't heard anything about him hopping in a spaceship with Jeff Bezos or, or buying a fleet of yachts. Is he Scrooge McDuckin's wealth in a big gold vault deep within the caverns of Maine? Remember what Charles Ardai said about Stephen being a genuinely kind man? He is a genuinely kind man. Well, turns out he and his wife Tabitha are giving away millions of his hard-earned dollars to charity. And the reason you haven't heard much about it? Well, he doesn't flaunt his generosity. According to its very modest website, the Stephen and Tabitha King Foundation is, quote, a private nonprofit organization that promotes strengthening and supporting communities and draws upon the values and spirituality of the founders. The foundation has a special interest in organizations and people who have less recourse to usual channels of resources, focusing on community-based initiatives in the state of Maine only. If anyone would know the extent of Stephen and Tabitha's generosity, it's Bangor City Councilor Claire Davitt. Bangor has benefited immensely from, from Stephen and Tabitha. Like I said, he $3 million to the library, so that's a huge chunk of change. But I believe he also just did like 6500 to help kids in a small area in Maine publish their own books. So like, he just comes at it from all angles. What we know about that's public is probably just this little tiny 1% of how much he actually gives. Here we are once again at Stephen's career crossroads right after the publication of Carrie. Stephen has knowingly veered into dangerous territory, choosing to publish Salem's Lot and risking being reduced as just a horror writer. He has told his editor, Bill Thompson, I don't care what they call me, as long as the checks don't bounce. So what happened after that? Was Stephen dubbed the next great American author? Did he become the second coming of Steinbeck? Well, I think we all know the answer to that. <sighs> I was indeed typed as a horror writer, a tag I have never confirmed or denied, simply because I think it's irrelevant to what I do. It does, however, give bookstores a handy place to shelve my books. Stephen King, ever the pragmatist. There is a reason Stephen King and his immense body of work have had such a grip on so many readers of so many ages for so many decades. And that reason lies within us, the many millions of constant readers of all shapes and sizes and colors, living and dead and undead, who have a deep shared connection. And as is so often the case with something you love, you wanna share it with others, right? So wouldn't it be grand to find a few more brand new constant readers and share with them the wild, weird, and wonderful world of Stephen King. Here's constant reader Sadie Hartman, AKA Mother Horror, who has probably read more horror books than anyone else on the planet. I don't know how I would tell him like face to face that what he's put out there into the world in terms of the Losers Club, in terms of Carrie, in terms of just characters that we have fallen in love with and have like stored away in our reader's heart. Like how much that means to people, you know, like the kids in the Losers Club, they all like embody like different characteristics of real kids who go through real things like being bullied, abuse, you know, just being scared and having to do something impossible, but like trying to muster up the courage to do it. We're there through all of that, you know, as a constant reader, watching and learning and just being a part of the Stephen King universe and relating to all of it. I believe there's something in King's work for everyone. Yes, even for you horror haters. And I truly believe each of our lives would be just a little bit richer with a little Stephen King in it. Because ladies and gentlemen, 
Scaring us is just a means to an end. In the end, according to Uncle Stevie, writing is about enriching the lives of those who will read your work and enriching your own life as well. It's about getting up, getting well, and getting over. Getting happy, okay? Getting happy. Getting happy. If that doesn't sound like the words of the king of horror, then I don't know what does. If you've enjoyed yourself here at the Stephen Kingdom podcast, check out our YouTube series that viewers have called impressive, informative, fantastic, astounding, and manic and energetic, but in a good way. You can find the Stephen Kingdom, both the podcast and the YouTube series on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you want to help us keep both the podcast and the YouTube series going, support our Patreon, where you can get all sorts of exclusive content, including deleted and extended material, early access to episodes, and your name in the end credits. Thank you to all our guests for our first podcast episode, Jen Adams, Nancy Allen, Charles Ardai, Richard Chismar, Claire Davitt, Sadie Hartman, Stephen Graham Jones, Greg Nicotero, Louis Peitzman, Darren Shan, Andrea Subasati, Paul Tremblay, and Bev Vincent. The Stephen Kingdom is hosted and written by me, David McCracken, and is produced and mixed by Josh Reedford. Long days and pleasant nights, constant listeners. <laughs>